Did you know that relaxation is all in your mind? That's right. By applying various techniques of mindfulness, you can practice relaxation anywhere and anytime, whether it's at home, work, or at play. Welcome to Come Back to Your Senses Radio with host Leah Brenda Smith. Our program is all about recovering your common sense. Now, here's health and wellness specialist Leah Brenda Smith. Hello and welcome. I am your host, Leah Brenda Smith, and welcome to Come Back to Your Senses Radio on Voice America Variety and Project Freedom Radio Network. If you're looking for me on the net, you can find me at leahbrendasmith.com. You can check out the archives uh, in iTunes or on my show page at Voice America Variety. So today is the show on decisions, decisions, decisions. You know, life is full of choices, and we make decisions every day. A wise man said that the decisions that we make, make us. Now, this really feels like a true statement to me. Clearly, the decisions that I have made have a tremendous impact on my life, and so your choices have had a big impact on your life. The quality and the direction of your life has been determined by those decisions. Here's a scenario that illustrates a good point here. A young businessman went to an older businessman and was seeking advice. He asked, what is the secret of success? The older man replied, making wise decisions. The young man then asked, how can I learn to make wise decisions? The older man replied, from experience. The young man then asked, how do I get experience? The older man answered, from making dumb decisions. We all know about this scenario because everyone has the equal potential to make good decisions and to make not so good decisions. And we all make mistakes. Sometimes we wait too long, we pay too much, we say the wrong thing, we open our mouths and insert our foot, and from time to time we all do senseless things. But the wise person, the wise person learns from their mistakes. And let's assume that we all learn from our mistakes and that we will all make better decisions next time. Here's a statement from James, verse 8 in the New Testament. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. The Greek word for double-minded literally means two-spirited being pulled in different directions. So when you are doubly minded, you have two loyalties or two priorities. You're being pulled in two directions at the same time. I'm, I've certainly experienced that, and I know that everybody that's ever made a decision has from time to time. And we know it causes confusion. It causes us to feel disoriented, to lose our center. It would be like a man, imagine a man standing next to a compass. Uh, well, he has a magnet in his pocket. Now, the compass naturally wants to point to magnetic north because that's what it's designed to do. Yet because the magnet is in the pocket, the compass is pulled off course. The compass is set off which is, seems like what happens to us when we feel pulled in two directions around making a decision. Theodore Roosevelt said, In any moment of decision, the best thing you can do is the right thing. The next best thing is the wrong thing. And the worst thing that you can do is nothing. 
And Tony Robbins says that it is in your moments of decision that your destiny is shaped. In your moment of decision, your destiny is shaped. Now, for some people, it can be very stressful to be the main decision maker in the family. And it can be equally stressful if you're not. So when you're the decision maker, others are constantly relying on you to make decisions that are in their best interest and in the best interest of the whole family. Sometimes people feel the pressure of this role and other people don't give it much thought at all. Or sometimes someone else is making decisions for you that you can't endorse and that can be very stressful as well. No, there are a lot of people that are in situations where they're relying on the services of an individual or an organization. They're vulnerable and they have to put their trust in an individual or in an organization to make decisions that are hopefully going to match their needs and their interests. This reminds me of a situation from the early years of when I was serving people with developmental disabilities when I was a young woman. And there was one client in particular that stands out in my mind around decision making. It was a young woman who was quite capable. And she felt very misplaced living in a home with folks that were not her intellectual peers. Her primary disability was physical in nature, and she aspired to continue on with her social and educational goals and interests. But there were things that she wanted for herself that she was being denied access to. Now, she often spoke with me about the challenges that she faced in dealing with the decision makers that worked at the head office of that particular organization. She made a brilliant deduction one day when she exclaimed that the people that were making the decisions about her life didn't know her. They knew nothing about her. They didn't know her interests, her needs, and certainly were not aware of her capabilities and her good abilities. Now, naturally, this left the woman feeling like a case file. You know, a number in a stack of files on someone's desk. And clearly, this woman is a good example of someone who was very far removed from the decision-making process and opportunities for her life. I used to advocate for people in similar kinds of situations. And as I matured, I realized that the best way to empower an individual in making good decisions is to support them in advocating for themselves rather than advocating for them. And this reminds me of the proverb, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, you feed him for always. Now, obviously, with some of people in life that are our most vulnerable citizens, it's not always possible for them to make the larger, more global decisions about their life. Yet regardless of a person's capacity, there is always some level of decision-making and autonomy that can be extended to them by the world at large, and especially their substitute decision-makers or their guardians. With a little bit of effort on the part of others, even people that function at a very basic level of cognition, you know, like a, an infant, a person with a profound disability, uh, someone with a brain injury, or a senior with dementia, they can get involved in the decision-making process if uh, someone assists them. And here's a little thought from Plato. He says, a good decision is based on knowledge and not on numbers. And a popular uh, 
saying that it goes uh, around and round from time to time on Facebook. A Facebook post by Ralph Waldo Emerson says that once you make a decision, the universe conspires to make it happen. Though raising my son as a single person and as a single mom was not without its challenges. Yet the rewards of this situation always outweighed the difficulties that came up in the just the natural course of daily living. However, the role of full-time decision-maker was relentless. There were days when I was so grateful to have Avi decide what we would have for dinner or to make a decision about a leisure activity. Because it was nice to get a bit of a reprieve from making you know, from always being the number one decision maker in our home. As a child, I was shy and I really lacked the confidence and really kept to myself a lot. And my answer to questions about what I wanted or what I'd like would often amount to a simple simple uttering of, I don't know. And it took some time to outgrow this kind of standard or pat answer to these kinds of questions. Now, you may know someone, a child or an adult, who's caught in a similar conundrum and struggles to make even the simplest of decisions. I was certainly grateful to raise a child that was free to choose, that was self-confident and definitive in his interests. You know, he was always able to speak up for what he wanted. Or sometimes he would let me know that whatever we were talking about was actually his decision and he would like the space to think about it and decide on his own or be responsible for something on his own. What a blessing it was to raise a child like that. That is for sure, for sure. You know, this morning I was... um I witnessed an exchange at a coffee shop between a man and a woman. It kind of struck me, given the content of today's show about decision-making. So the woman had already made her decision about what she wanted, and she had ordered what she wanted. And the man was looking at the sandwiches, and I heard him call out the names of the two choices of sandwiches. And then the man looks at the woman and says, which one should I get? And she looks back at him and responds by saying, it's your choice. Pick whatever you want. Now, I noticed that he proceeded somewhat reluctantly, but he did choose a sandwich. And who knows what thoughts were going on inside of his head. Perhaps he deliberates over simple choices all of the time. Some people are great with the larger life-impacting decisions yet can't decide which restaurant to go to or what to do on a Saturday afternoon. And other people are perhaps the other way around. They can make decisions easily about all the little things that happen throughout the natural course of daily living, yet when it comes to those bigger decisions about life, they have more difficulty. Some people are just naturally, they're just... They're just naturally strong leaders and great decision makers and have good qualities for making decisions. It is a sign of a good leader to be able to make fair and equitable decisions that are good for all of the people involved and just not serve their own self-interests or a smaller portion of the people they're making decisions for. And I encourage all of us to look for these good qualities when we're choosing friends, a partner, or peers in a workplace, or even when we have to make a vote and choose a president or a prime minister. I recently had a conversation with someone in the service industry who was telling me about her current job, and she relayed several situations where her instinct was to serve the family's needs in a way that was well within the scope and the best interest of the company also. Yet, because her approach was not the way that things were normally done, her 
attempt at creative problem-solving was rejected in favor of staying within the scripted box of the company. And I think that that is a challenge that we face all the time in life, in all industries, in all aspects of life, when old ways are uh, adhered to just because they're old ways and not necessarily because they are um, doing the best service for people. So I encourage all of us, whenever we're able to, to speak up or to in- inject some new energy into uh, into these types of situations in the name of the best interests for the whole. Because if we don't bring new energy to the day and to the situations of our life, then it's easy to become stagnant. You know, we can stagnate in such a way that we're simply going through the motions of our life and not really connecting with the people, the places, and the things that we're supposedly involved with or connected to. At times, the biggest decision that we make is this decision to be self-reflective. Self-reflection. It's an empowering experience to engage in a process of self-inquiry, to question our motives, to develop new skills, and to move in new directions within our interior landscape. And whenever we do this type of activity, it always has a very positive impact on the people and the events and the situations of our life. Here's Woody Allen's two cents worth. He says, in my house, I'm the boss. My wife is just the decision maker. And then Robert Schuller says, again and again, the impossible problem is solved. When we see that the problem is only a tough decision waiting to be made. And then Harry S. Truman said, all my life, whenever it comes to make a decision, I make it and forget about it. A while back, I watched a video clip of uh, Kevin Billett uh, from the journey process, and he was giving a talk on the role of the brain in the decision-making process. And I was I was really fascinated to learn about the leading research in the air, in this area of study. And for the purpose of this conversation, let's look at three parts of the brain in particular. So the first one is the neocortex. And this is a modern part of the brain, which is focused on analyzing and rationalizing and justifying. It's involved in the thinking process and it rationalizes our behavior. So that's the first part. The second part is the limbic system. And this is an ancient part of the brain. It's the emotional center, the emotional seat of the brain. And it focuses on uh, processing our emotions. And then the third part we're going to focus on is the brain stem. And this is an even older part of the brain. It's more the instinctual part of the brain. It regulates our heartbeat regulates our breathing, and this the brainstem is attached to the spinal column and focuses on deep instinctual responses. Now, while using a PET scan, which is positron emission tomography, studies that have been conducted with the PET scan were conducted to try and determine which parts of the brain fire up during the decision-making process. The results of the testing indicated that only the brain stem and the limbic system are involved with the decision-making process. 
So it's only the emotional and the ancient part of the brain that is active during decision-making. Yet, when we make decisions, we're so aware of the process that we go through with our neocortex. We analyze, we rationalize, and with great determination, we focus on the thinking part of the brain. We do all this thinking And while we're doing that, we're thinking that it will take us to the place of making the right decision for ourselves, And that the thought process will help us to make good decisions and that it will help us to take healthy action on our own behalf. However, the decisions actually take place in the limbic system and the brainstem portion of the brain. We have been conditioned to believe that certain emotional responses are bad, you know, like fear and anger and hate and jealousy and even grief. And that's why so many of our emotional responses scare us, because of the assumptions that are often placed on some of our emotions. So really it's the association with certain emotions that prompts our mind to try and undo decisions that we've already made. And that's what's happening when you find yourself going round and round, back and forth, agonizing over the same criteria for decision over and over and over again. The neocortex comes up with the rational explanation for why it's a good decision. And then in the next breath, the neocortex can come up with another equally rational explanation for why it's not a good decision and tries to tempt you to change your mind. And this process is being generated because in some way you're feeling uncomfortable with the emotional consequences of your decision. Like we mentioned earlier, being too minded or too spirited. However, the the limbic brain and the brainstem are the deeply unconscious part of the brain that is connected intrinsically connected to our body wisdom. Your limbic brain and brain stem make the decision based on what it is that's in the best interest according, not to your thinking, but according to your body wisdom. Not according to your rational, logical, linear mind and thinking, but to your body wisdom. So there is published research that indicates that our thinking brain, that neocortex, processes about 2,000 bits of information per second, which is about 0.000005% of our total body wisdom. Now, in contrast to that, the limbic system and the brainstem combined process approximately 4,000 million bits of body wisdom per second, which accounts for the other 99.9999995% of body wisdom that is processed per second. That is certainly staggering, staggering. The brilliance of the brain no matter which side you look at it, in terms of the billions bits of information that it can process in a single second, I find that staggering. You know, our current laws are really based on rationalization, right? They're based on the belief that people will act in a rational way in the best interest of everyone. We believe that people will choose law and order, However, we certainly know that that's not always the case. You know, criminal laws are set up so that the punishment is severe. That's the idea anyways. You know, it's done so there is an emotional response. There is a fear. And the idea behind it is 
the thinking that fear will tend to push us away from making really unhealthy decisions. Now, that would work out well if it was the rational mind that kept us on the right path, but that is just not the case. It's not our thinking that keeps us moving, moving, moving in a healthy direction. You know, our Western economic model is based on the idea of a rational consumer, which assumes that over time we'll choose things that are in our best interest. But all we have to do is look at the amount of credit card debt, the amount of drug and alcohol abuse, the numbers of people suffering with obesity, the level of crime, of killing, of terrorism. And this this all indicates that there is no rational thinking in these decisions. People's behavior, as well as the studies, indicate that decisions are emotionally driven. So when we're equipped with this, this type of knowledge that we make decisions from the limbic system and the brainstem and that the process is emotional and not mental, that this can have a positive impact on the way that we approach the decision-making process. When we approach decision-making from a place of calm and inner stillness, so that we can listen, that we can hear the body wisdom, then the decisions we are, that we make will more likely follow a straight line to our goals and the purpose and the direction that we've chosen for ourselves. When you notice your mind wandering and wanting to analyze things and pulling everything apart and second-guessing yourself and fretfully or even fearfully trying to undo things, that's a good clue. That's a good time to calm yourself down and inquire from your deeper knowing. What is right action for you in this moment? So if we can approach decision-making from that perspective, then it can be a lot easier to determine the right path. Now, bear in mind that sometimes your mind might be objecting, saying, no, no, not that. Don't make me do that. (laughs) Especially, this will be especially true when it involves stepping into the unknown, you know, into new uncharted territory. Some people say, you know, taking a step off the cliff, it's natural to be uneasy about change and new approaches or new endeavors. Yet when you make the choices that are right for you, things generally move forward in a smooth way, you know, that is unfettered. And the clarity of your decision continues to reveal itself in the execution of the plan. These kinds of decisions take a certain amount of courage and certainly a willingness to be emotionally open, but the rewards are fantastic because those type of decisions are the decisions that are made in alignment with your true purpose and your goals and your values and what you feel uh, um, uh, prompted in terms of whatever contribution it is that you're trying to achieve by the decisions you're making. And through your own self-inquiry, you may want to look at your own conditioning that may be preventing you from moving forward in the direction of openness and freedom to express yourself fully and to move in the direction of your own greatest potential. You know, your thinking brain is a great tool when it's used in the right way. But when it comes to decision-making and living life in an open and expressed way, it's not generally the best tool. So once you make your decisions, then the neocortex is an invaluable tool to help you execute your decisions and put together action plans or to take action that can actually help you to make your decisions uh, realized in the world. It's good to get a better view on what's really going on with the brain and 
the function and how it is that these decisions are made inside of ourselves, even though we have the idea in our mind that we make decisions from some kind of rational perspective. And Jackson Brown Jr. says, choose your life's mate carefully. From this one decision will come 90% of all your happiness or misery. (laughs) And then Darren Johnson says, any time there is a struggle between doing what is actually right and doing what seems right, then your ego is interfering with your decision. I thought we could just go through some keys to making good decisions and some ideas suggested uh, from uh, the EssentialLifeSkills.net. And, you know, there are important steps and keys to making good decisions. And obviously, good decision-making is necessary for living life productively and effectively. And we're all confronted with millions of decisions all the time. A lot of them we don't even think of them. They're, they're minor and they have little consequences. And other decisions we make are huge and change our lives forever. And, you know, there are some decisions that we make that are certainly difficult and, and, um, really require, uh, uh, the time to make good inquiry in yourself. So to help us with the complex and difficult decisions to make, we can go through a process that can help us come up with a good approach. And this can help you settle things really in the neurocortex of your neocortex of your brain. So you can identify the decision to be made as well as, you know, what are your objectives or what outcome are you trying to achieve? And then you want to gather as many facts and as much information as you can in order to access all your options. Brainstorming is a very common approach to come up with several possible choices and to help you determine if the options are compatible with your values and your interests and your abilities. We have the weighing the possibilities of the possible outcomes, you know, the pros and cons or what's the, well, uh, not the pros and cons, but what's the worst that can happen? What will happen if I do A or B or C? And can I live with the consequences? That's what it is to weigh the probabilities of the possible outcomes. And then another aspect is, of course, making the list of the pros and the cons. You know, to prioritize which considerations really are the important ones for you and which are less important. And sometimes when you do that list and match up the pros and the cons, you might find that there's, you know, dramatically lopsided or you may feel like you're more in a 50-50 kind of a situation, which will really um, put you in a situation of needing to have a deeper inquiry than just that level of the mind. Often people solicit opinions and obtain feedback from people that they trust or people that have had similar situations that they've had to go through. And people may give you uh, perspectives that maybe you haven't thought about before. And then once you make the decision, you want to monitor your results or some people say do the follow-up. Make sure you are, you know, to be sure that you're obtaining the right results that you're wanting. So obviously there are no guarantees. You never know in advance whether a decision is good or bad, but you need to prepare and take the risks in order to move forward. And then you want to look for the opportunity. So if you make a mistake or if the decision you made didn't turn out the way that you wanted, you can view it as an opportunity to learn what didn't work, maybe learn why it didn't work, and 
so much of the time decisions are reversible and you can change your mind. You say, well, I made that decision and that didn't quite work out the way I wanted. So you make a new decision. And then there's that always, you know, people say hindsight is twenty twenty. You know, on occasion you might discover in a hindsight situations that may have affected your decisions if you had known about them earlier. And so it's normal and it's typical that that would happen. That's always going to be the case. That's no different than, you know, buying something on sale and then really finding out later that it was on sale for a better price somewhere else. But what can be most debilitating is when you get stuck and you don't do anything, when you hesitate and don't make the decision. So if you really find that you've done everything to make a good decision and you can, still can't make up your mind, you know, don't don't delay on making those important decisions for fear that you might make the wrong choice. You know, do a deeper inquiry and make the choice that feels right, the one that is there in the body wisdom, and then go forward from there. You don't want to let your fear stop you. You know, sometimes we become paralyzed with fear when we're afraid of making the wrong decision, and sometimes people panic and they lose sight of what it is they're really trying to accomplish because they be they become overcome with the fear. That's the, the fear of the consequences, really, uh, the emotional consequences of the decision. And that can get in the way, really, of you, you know, making the decision that is really the right one for yourself. And there's always that second-guessing. So you don't want to second-guess. You want to end that guessing game. You know, it's a... Uh, that's a hard one. Once you've met the decision, may, once you've made your decision, just, you know, let things be the way they are and keep your focus, so that single-mindedness of focused. And if it turns out to be not a great thing, then you will have learned from the lesson and then you can make a better choice the next time for yourself. Because no matter what, all you can do is make the best choice with what it is that you have to work with. And it's good to not underestimate that power of your intuition, that power of your gut feeling, and rely on that body wisdom. It's natural your mind is going to continue to weigh all the facts and evaluate everything, but in the final analysis, you have to go with what feels right inside. You know, making decisions is a skill that teens will need, they need to learn about and learn to do well. Because at that stage in life, the decisions that they're making are really life altering. You know, whether or not to get a job or to start smoking, teens grapple about using drugs and drinking and going to college and dating and having sex and all these decisions that teenagers are making all the time. And, you know, even the decisions like whether or not to study for the upcoming test, which can lead to good grades and could lead to good college choices. You know, it's good to help your teens to learn to make their decisions for themselves. Because when teens have good decision-making skills, obviously, then it reduces their stress and Clearly, when we make poor decisions and teens make poor decisions, it causes a lot more stress. So here's some ideas of how you can help your help your teen. You know, the first step really as a parent is that you need to be willing to let go and let your teen take over. Your teenager needs to take over the decision-making process. You know, take time to think it through. It, it's not going to happen all at once, but but start focusing on that. Sometimes as parents, we wait uh, way, way too long and we're really doing a disservice to our teenagers by not letting them be involved in the important decisions that they need to make, even if we don't always agree with the decisions. You know, they, uh, they need to make the decisions and find their way to make it all work out for themselves. And you want to help your teen if they're in conflict and they to verbally spell out the conflict and you want to maybe end with the question what and asking them what do you think that they could do you know what do you think you can do what are your options and help your teen make a list of the things that they might not think about but don't do the task for them let them be involved in it you want to encourage your teen to think through each of the options 
you know, discussing the pros and cons will help them see the bigger picture of the option. Sometimes teens have a problem seeing the bigger picture. Well, it's different certainly for a 17-year-old than it might be for a 13 or 14-year-old. But be available to listen and help even after your teen has developed the good decision-making skills. You want to allow your teens to make the decisions and just before you're ready to say, I think you should, uh, you want to hold on to your tongue. And even or long after they're teenagers, uh, that is something as a parent that you just need to keep forever, even when your children are as old as you are now. You know, your, your teens may not be getting around to the final stages of their thoughts and their options for choosing. So you may want to ask them. Maybe they're being... Maybe they're worried about being allowed to make their own decisions. Sometimes your teenager might say, oh, you want me to choose. I didn't know I was allowed. So sometimes with your teenagers, the best thing you could do is let them be clear that you're giving them permission, that it's time for them to participate more fully in that decision-making process. And then you always want to reevaluate, to do the follow-up, reconnect, evaluate the decision with your teen. You want to talk to your teens about what happened, what the outcome might have been from their decisions, even if it wasn't what they had hoped for. You could help them by discussing what they might do differently the next time. Not to judge it, but just to get a bigger view and give some options and to help them learn about this. Because really, how did we all learn about making decisions? We made good decisions sometimes, we made not so good decisions sometimes, and we learned from this process. You know, if you go through these steps with your teens and, and help them work through these important decisions, they'll get the hang of it. And it will help them to feel confident and it will help them with their maturity. And Robert Schuller says that never make your most important decisions when you're in your worst moods. Wait and just be patient. The storm will pass and the spring will come. And then the noted philosopher William Jane said that once a decision is made, you should stop worrying and start working. It's not always what we know that makes it a good decision. It's what we do to implement and execute the decision that makes it a good decision and maybe even a great decision. Too many people overrate decision-making and underrate decision-managing. And there are really two possibilities in making a good decision. You can manage it incorrectly, make a good decision, but manage it incorrectly and have average results. And we need both of the decision, good decision-making, and good managing of our decisions to really get the ideas off the ground and get going in the right direction. That is for sure. And, you know, John Maxwell wrote in his book, uh, Today Matters, he says that too often leaders fall into traps that cause them to make faulty decisions. You know, they may not realize that their methodology is flawed or that their thinking lacks really the necessary precision. So he suggests a couple of uh, pitfalls that we should be mindful of, that we don't uh, sabotage our efforts to express ourselves wisely and definitively. He says the procrastinating, Pro- procrastinating, If you tend to dread the finality of taking a stand or calling the shots, well, then you may be tempted to put off the decision. And then surrendering. Which, like, exceptionally hard decisions can deplete you so much of your energy that you finally cave in. But rather than surrender, just Break a big decision into its smaller components and then just address the segments a little bit at a time. And he cautions about hiding behind information. He says that many managers, right, they're extracting standards. They they crave unending stacks of data before making a decision. The more facts and figures they accumulate, then the more facts and figures they want before they really are ready to decide. And then another pitfall is saying yes to everything. So you're not making true decisions if you're always giving the go-ahead and the thumbs up. Charles Nelson nailed it when he said, 
When against one's will, one is high pressured into making a hurried decision, the best answer is always no, because a no is more easily changed to a yes than a yes is changed into a no. And, you know, for managing good decisions, you need discipline. Because the discipline that you practice today is going to give you a better tomorrow. And the first ingredient of success and making good decisions, it really has no, well, little value really without the second part, which is practicing good discipline. As an example, everyone wants to be thin, but no one wants to diet. Everyone wants to live long, but we don't want to exercise. Everyone wants money, but few people want to work hard. And successful people conquer their feelings and form the habit of doing things unsuccessful people do not do. Kind of like the bookends of success from start to finish. You know, the decision helps us start and then the discipline helps us finish. But most people want to avoid the pain and the discipline is often painful. But we need to recognize there are really two kinds of pain when it comes to our daily contact. There's the pain of self-discipline and the pain of regret. Many people avoid the pain of self-discipline because it's the easy thing to do. What they may not realize is that the pain of self-discipline is only momentary, but the payoff is long-lasting. And that's how you make a good decision great. And John Maxwell uses these just-for-today ideas. He says, um, just-for-today, he says, choose and display the right attitudes, determine and act on important priorities, know and follow healthy guidelines, communicate with care to my family, practice and develop good thinking, make and keep proper commitments, earn and properly manage your finances, deepen and live within my faith, initiate and invest in solid relationships, plan for and model generosity, embrace and practice good values, seek and experience improvements, act on these decisions and practice these disciplines. And then one day you will see that the compounding results of a day well lived will be that you will be able to achieve your goals. Make your decisions and follow up with the discipline to achieve your goals. So as we wrap things up today, I just want to share with you this little story. It's a story about a former president of the United States, Ronald Reagan. And this story really illustrates what can happen to us if we procrastinate making decisions. So here's the little story. It says, when he was a small child, Ronald Reagan had an aunt who took him to a shoemaker to make a pair of shoes. When they arrived, the shoemaker asked the young Ronald Reagan whether he wanted the toes of his shoes squared or rounded. Now, Ronald Reagan wasn't sure of the style that he wanted, so he told the shoemaker that he would come back in a few days and let him know. Sure enough, a few days later, he returned, only to tell the shoemaker that he still needed a few more days to make his decision. As soon as he walked in the door for the third time, the shoemaker handed him his shoes with one square-toed shoe and one round-toed shoe. And Ronald Reagan said years later, 
it was a lesson that stayed with me for the rest of my life. When he wore those shoes, he said, it was a visual reminder that if I don't make the decision, that someone else will make it for me. We want to remember that. If you don't make the decision that you want to make, sure enough, there'll be plenty of people around you that will be willing to make the decision for you. And it's good to remember, we learned today about what this new discovery is in terms of where the decisions are actually made. That it's not really in your neocortex, in that thinking part of the brain, but it's in the limbic system, that more ancient part of the brain, and in the brain stem, the more ancient parts of the brain, the parts that really hold and carry our body wisdom. And I encourage all of us to think about that. Let that kind of sink in and Sometimes that that can really help you. You know, we can't get around that brain thing that happens, the thinking and the processing and the guessing and the analyzing and the rationalizing. That's the part of the neocortex. But if you let yourself drop into a deep place in yourself to make your decisions and then call upon that neocortex because it is a fabulous tool to help you then take those decisions and actualize them in your life and in the world. So I I really appreciated learning about this because it wasn't something that I was aware of, but for sure it makes a lot of sense to me. And if you really give some time to reflect on this, you will discover that that is the truth for yourself as well. So we want to match up all these things in our life and get the harmony going in our decision-making. It has been a pleasure to speak with you today about decisions, decisions, decisions. And I am your ever grateful host, Leah Brenda Smith. And I thank you for tuning in and listening to Come Back to Your Senses Radio. And next week, we're going to talk about uh, emotional intelligence or EQ, emotional quotient, instead of IQ, intelligent quotient. So emotional intelligence is on for next week and uh, until then I encourage you to relax and enjoy life we hope you've enjoyed our program today and perhaps have found some new techniques that you can apply to your daily life thank you for tuning in to come back to your senses radio please join Leah Brenda Smith again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time 4 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Variety Channel We'll see you next week.